a Lion Fury production. Welcome to Wolf and Cub Film Club, a film review show with a twist. What's the twist, you ask? Well, it's me and me dad. He's the wolf, and I'm the cub. There's another thing. We're both filmmakers. Wolf, Steve Thomas, makes documentaries and is a film school senior lecturer. And Cub, that's me, Danny Thomas, am also a writer and an actor. So grab a chock top, sit back and relax as we discuss two films per episode, often with a common theme between them. On this episode, we have an animal theme. In part one, we'll dive into My Octopus Teacher, a doco about a filmmaker's unusual friendship with an octopus living in a South African kelp forest. In part two, we'll look at Keddy, a profile of Istanbul and its people as seen through the eyes of beloved and mysterious cats. Let's go. Better get on with some movies, my friend. It's the film club. All right, so I'm going to introduce... My Octopus Teacher, it's from last year and it won Best Documentary at the Oscars. Um, And it's essentially about this filmmaker, Craig Foster's bond that he develops with an octopus in a kelp forest uh, under the ocean in South Africa. Sounds like a Disney film. (laughs) It does. does Is there an animation I just the funny the funny thing is I, I first watched it a while ago, quite a long time. I watched it last year, and I had seen it pop up, and the image of the octopus was not really appealing as a like poster image for the film because the octopus is on face value is not very pretty, and the name the strange name my octopus teacher so it didn't jump out. But then I was recommended to by a friend to watch it, and that's when I first saw it. And then I showed it to some friends a couple of months ago. So I've seen it twice, but the last viewing was a little bit ago. So what did you think then when when you did sit down to watch it? It's an amazing film and I was very moved in a number of ways. It's a strangely kind of affecting film, I found. I thought it was all, you know, a little bit weird really. I mean, this guy's clearly obsessed or becomes obsessed in the film anyway with this creature, which is akin to an alien, really. It's almost like, you know, um, who's the one with the finger that like E.T.? You know, it's it's an alien, but somehow he forms this relationship with it which is all a bit strange and obsessive. But then I found myself thinking about the film a lot afterwards. So it was kind of affecting despite myself in a way. I, I must admit I was, it, I found it strange. I found it a little bit obsessive as well, this relationship. And I did tussle with that. And then the same deal, then I found myself thinking about it uh, in very much a primal sense, you know, a return to a this guy returning to a primal way of daily existence. So a bit of background from him was that he originally did this doco in 2000, The Great Dance, and that was 
through the eyes of a hunter in the in the Kalahari Desert in Africa. And he said, so Craig Foster said, as a result of this making this film, following this hunting tribe who were tracking every footprint and every thing they needed to to hunt, he realized he then had a a realization how disconnected he was from both nature and family. And he ended up burning out essentially and questioning a lot about what he was doing in his own life. And that's when he started to free dive and get into this free diving. And that's how he then made this discovery and developed this bond with this female octopus. Yeah, apparently female. <laughs> I presume he knows how to tell. And it does turn out to be female because it lays a million eggs at the end. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, the film's worth talking about on a number of levels, isn't it? There's like the whole tech, the techniques behind it and the fact that he does this free diving without a wetsuit and without an air bottle in water that's only nine degrees, which is freezing. And he says, you know, after a year of doing that, you kind of get used to it. And in fact, you want to get out and do it every day, which is what he does. Now, I, I don't have that experience, but whether it's akin to you plunging into the um, into the lake during winter in Hamburg or not, I'm not sure. It is very much so, and it really resonated when he says in the film that he he needed to to go without a wetsuit. He needed to feel that direct connection without a barrier, without the barrier of a wetsuit. And it's amazing how we can adapt. So, yeah, just quickly for the listeners through, through winter, I've been delving into cold plunging in, in an icy lake here in Hamburg. And it's been such a simple thing to do in a way really, but it's really got me through winter. And there's, there's so much I can say about that as a, as a thing, but it resonated with me, this being at one with the elements and trusting, trusting in your body and that you can actually thrive in some pretty extreme conditions yeah yeah so is that what it did for you it did so many things for me i think i think jumping into the into the cold immediately would would bring me back into my body so what was it whatever was going on with all the heady logical stuff the intense cold of the water would would pull me into my body and I'd have to try and give into it and let go and a lot of it was mindset because if I was wrestling with myself I was wrestling in the water but as soon as I let go there was this stillness that just came but you have to you have to get through the initial fear one of jumping in and the shock of jumping in, and then it's a very slow, 
the particular Wim Hof method, there's particular breathing techniques and it's very important to do those. So I had a, I was learning all that stuff in a couple of weeks when I did it, I didn't focus as much as I should have on the breathing or I, you know, I wasn't so well prepped when I went in, but if you prepare yourself well and you give into it and let go, it's really a, an amazing thing to do. And just, I I could really talk about it for a long time, but to the main thing from that, for me, it was very much about trying to strengthen well-being and immunity. And it was also quite tribal in a way, doing it with a group of people every week and going through this, this kind of adversity every week together was so rewarding And normally winters here in Germany are pretty brutal, but doing this every week and embracing the winter as opposed to hiding away from it really got me through the winter as an Aussie who's used to heat and and stuff. The winters are very brutal here, obviously, but this really got me through. So, yeah, watching, watching him, hearing him talk about how he needed to be as close to the water and everything in it as possible i really yeah and it's not really clear in the film how long he holds his breath for but it feels like he must be able to hold it for 10 minutes or 15 minutes or something before he has to go up for air again and then the interesting thing because you know i i hear what you say but i wouldn't be volunteering for this but he actually gets his 15-year-old son doing it in the end. And there's this 15-year-old kid doing the diving without a wetsuit and no air, you know. So it's pretty amazing, really. Yeah, I have to say about that, um, I was probably more moved by that relationship with his son than I was by the relationship with the octopus. And I don't know how much of that, I mean, being a father, but that, I mean, I empathised with the octopus. That's the main thing. I had a huge empathy for this creature that is just literally being hunted and its primary objective every day is to survive in a very intense year cycle of life. Like you say, she laid a million million eggs at the end. Um, I, I very much empathised with the animal, but what got me more was the connection to the to the boy and passing that on towards the end. Well, that's but that's the story we're being told by this film, and we can, we'll come on to story later. I think, particularly when we perhaps compare this to the other film that we're going to discuss, but, um, yeah, I mean, the the, the idea or the, the, the storyline is that the octopus, through his relationship with the octopus, he relearns how to relate to his son, you know, and so that's the kind of happy ending, although the octopus, you know, has its year and disappears... He goes on to have this renewed relationship with his son in the context of their diving together. 
Did you empathise with the octopus like, are you never going to eat calamari again? Or <laughs> I don't eat calamari to start with. I should have known that. I thought that when I said it. You're not. You're yeah. not. A, you've never been a um, seafood fan. Not not that kind of seafood. Um, did I empathise with the octopus? Uh, empathy is a bit of a strong word. I was kind of amazed by the octopus in the sense that um, he says, you know, it's like a big snail but without a shell. And because it hasn't got a shell, it's completely at the mercy of all the predators and the sharks and everything around it. And as you say, it has to find ways of surviving and that it has. It clearly has an, the intelligence equivalent to a dog or a cat, and but but you know it's not furry and lovable like a dog or a cat. But that scene where the octopus reaches out its tentacle and hooks onto his hand, I mean you can't help but be kind of. I mean, what what the fuck was going through the octopus's mind? I don't know. He might have been thinking, is this something I can eat? <laughs> but it's presented in such a way that it's a very moving moment, and that's partly in his narration of his perspective because he anthropomorphizes all the time about this octopus. But it's also, I became aware the second time I watched it of how important, and I don't know if you noticed this, you probably did, how important the sound design is because it's all ultra kind of real, ultra realism. It's all foliage, the underwater sounds, the music, you know, it, it, it's all designed to, to kind of, engulf us in this story which um which you know at its most basic and perhaps um slightly skeptical way i read somewhere is a film about octopus befriends troubled diver and teaches him about life you know that's the storyline and I've, I've, I read a really interesting article about the making of the film, which you could perhaps put a link to when you do this, uh, because a lot of people have, are asked, have asked the question, is this a real film, you know, or is it kind of faked? And they explain the processes of the making of the film. And, uh, you know, it's clear he did. He went down with a camera every day for a year or every couple of days and he filmed these interactions but then in order to make it a film that makes sense they've obviously got a second diver with a camera to go down after the event and shoot a whole lot of b-roll footage of him swimming around and you know all that all those sort of shots of him that he couldn't have taken at the time because he's busy shooting the octopus. So it's a very constructed film from that point of view. And they talk about the director, because this article was written by one of the directors, and they talk about how they were faced with this huge film about the kelp forest, and Craig Foster actually has a foundation, you know, dedicated to the saving of the kelp forest. 
But uh, as they tried to edit this mammoth film, they became more and more conscious that the way to tell the story was through this particular story of his relationship with with this alien whose world he's trying to enter. This seems to be something that's come up before where there's an idea for a story. It was similar, we said, with Dick Johnson, where the initial concept for the film then became something else. It seems to be a common thing where they're trying to tell a story and then they find another through through line. Yep. And so they then sat him down, Craig Foster, because the film essentially is based around an interview with him sitting at the table and he tells the whole story. So they did the whole interview with him for a whole day or something and then they got all his footage and they got extra footage and they put it all together to tell the story. But, I mean, some of the stuff he... um, he shot was amazing and the intelligence of the creature like that scene where it's hunted by a shark and the way it survives is by jumping on the shark's back (laughs) so the shark can't get at it you know that that a mollusk can come up with this idea you know it's incredible really and how he captured that that was mind-boggling, and what you're saying, what you're saying about the sequence of events, I did wonder about that because I was fairly bamboozled by everything working so well, and I was like, "Is this just real time captured chronologically?" And I hadn't, I haven't seen that article that breaks it down, but yeah, it's not surprising that there had to be some construction of it all to make it into a neatly thing but yeah to capture moments like that where 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 it's on the back of the shark it's just really profound and i i mean the thing is his former life which burned him out was was a life as a cinematographer so you know he had those skills to take with him because it it is beautifully shot and you really can't tell the difference between what he's shot and what another cinematographer has shot you know, it, it's it's beautiful stuff. It, like you say, it's about how can a mollusk do this sort of stuff. Well, what was really moving as well was the scene where it seemed to have a sense of play. It was springing its arms out, and you you really you grasp that this is a creature that is just its pure motivation is survival. But then the fact that it started to play, that that was kind of mind-blowing. It's like, okay, this is an animal that has a sense of of play in it. And also his building of trust with it. And then there's that moment where he breaks its trust, he gets too close and it flees. And he's quite devastated because he think he's been building toward it and it's the essentially could be the end of the relationship and then he finds her again. Yeah. But, you know, dogs play, cats play, lambs leap around. When creatures like dogs and cats play, we we don't see that as anything extraordinary. But when an octopus plays, 
because it's such a kind of alien, apparently other alien creature, it, it surprises us for some reason. But, you know, all, all, all the evidence, you know, with dolphins and all the rest of it is that they do have these um, abilities to make music and enjoy themselves and stuff like that. Why not an octopus, you know? And I think the octopus being the teacher, he said himself it gave him a humility. The, the octopus taught him compassion and humility. And as humans, I think we do see ourselves as the superior intellect. So it's surprising, like you say, when you see this alien-looking thing doing all this clever kind of ingenious stuff and play it's like well maybe we're not just the superior species yeah well exactly and you get moments where there's a moment in the film where he starts to research octopuses and he tells you a bit about them and stuff and that you know two-thirds of their cognition is actually outside of their brain that they have 2,000 suckers and every one is like an individual finger, you know, and then you're left to just marvel at this creature, you know, which we just catch on a hook and eat on our plates. <laughs> um, because, the, and, and he says, you know, you can, you can compare the intelligence of one of these octopuses to a dog or a cat or a lower primate. You know, they have a comparable intelligence. But because they don't have legs and, you know, things that, that there's nothing about an octopus that's like us, except for one thing, um, because of that, we've, we think, oh, you know, it can't be intelligent, it can't be intelligent. But what is the one thing? The eyes or the eye? Yeah, exactly, the eyes. The eyes. And the eyes, it, the saying goes that the eyes are the window to the soul. And when we film, we're always taught, make sure the eyes are in focus, you know, because that's where people's attention goes. And he's got shots. There are shots in the film, big close-ups, of the octopus's eye and you're just kind of looking into that eye. And in Keddy, which is the other film we're going to talk about, there are lots of close-ups, big close-ups of cats' eyes. And it reminds me of a time, I think it was with Leo, your boy Leo, we were at the zoo in Melbourne and looking at the orangutans and there was this big elderly looking orangutan the other side of the glass and its eyes met my eyes you know planet <laughs> of the bit. apes planet of the yeah, apes same. and you know like it was like looking into the prehistoric past but our eyes kind of locked momentarily and I'll never forget that experience. And then didn't it proceed to beat up a possum or, or pee? No, that was another occasion. Was another Thank goodness Leo wasn't there. What it proceeded to do to Leo's amusement was shin up a pole and piss all over the 
everybody below it. <laughs> That's what amused Leo. It's it's made me think of two other incidents. The first, I, I swam with a shark once just off Byron Bay, just be snorkeling, and it's amazing how when you're in an aquarium and there's sharks above you, you get a shiver of kind of fear, but then all of a sudden you're snorkeling with them and you're kind of calm in their habitat. And this one time, you know, the shark was quite far away and it was a very weird type of shark. The guy said it was like a pyramid shark or something. They've, they have sort of a triangular body. And all I remember from that experience is two things. One, my, this, the, my heart beating very strongly and I could feel and sort of hear that. And the other, it's eye, like you said, just this, just this eye gliding past. That was the the most direct connection I had to it. But I actually felt kind of safe, which is really weird. I felt more worried in a, in an aquarium. But but it was the eye. It was the eye, like you said. And the other one, which which is a bit different, was when we got approached by a stingray in Tasmania, and I. <laughs> absolutely shit myself and you stayed you stayed very just for the listeners this stingray was actually like we're talking arm span and we were on quite a deserted beach and it came it was clearly just curious but i had no idea whether it was a day because some razors can sting and some can't and i just didn't know whether it was dangerous but it was it was almost like it was being playful and curious I, th- I think it was, yeah, it was buried in the sand and it just flapped up underneath you, didn't it? My memory, which might have been sensationalised, is that a big black shadow came from the distance and approached us and all that, so I don't oh, know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the interesting thing was, because I, I think I told you, when we went back to Flinders Island 25 years later, a couple of years ago, we went to that, I took Anne to that same beach and this ray flapped up in the water, in the shallows right in front of me. And I thought, well, I wonder if it's the same one. I, I can guarantee it was the same one. Do they live to be 25? This is, yeah, this is a good point. How long do uh, to big mantis, it was almost a manta ray, so how long do these yeah, big, yeah, mantis, big mantis live? It was big. I remember you were you were scared, Steph, and I I just laughed. I think <laughs> I, I remember I, I swore about a thousand times in sixty seconds. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this is the thing, you know. This, this is we'll come on to this, but I suppose this is my my criticism of the film is that um, the degree of anthropomorphizing this creature gets a bit over the top. Like there's a line after she's laid her eggs, you know, they lay their eggs and then they die basically. And he makes some comment about the octopus. She's sacrificing her life for the sake of her young, where, you know, I don't, I I, I don't think that's what's driving this octopus at all. You know, it's instinct. Time to lay the eggs. What interested me was it, it lays a million eggs and only about four octopuses survive because, you know, it lays them in the water and they all just get eaten. So to get a couple of octopuses to survive, you have to lay a million eggs, um, which is a bit of standing, really. 
with these octopuses, it's for even when they're even when they're an embryo, they're instantly trying to survive. They're getting eaten immediately. But I, I get what you, I get what you're saying about this glorifying her kind of falling on the sword for the for the birth. Whereas, whereas you're saying no, it's just purely instinct. She knows it's time to lay eggs, and that's it. Yeah, and then you know it's the way that the story is is fitted into the classic three act structure or whatever it is, where you know he goes on this strange journey. He discovers the octopus. They learn from one another, and then in the act of of uh, procreation, the octopus is then, you know, eaten by a shark, basically, and that's the end of it. But it's not the end of it because, you know, the denouement is that he then moves on to this new relationship with his son. Um, so, and and I guess, I mean, I think the message, what, what did you take as the message of the film? Did you take a message about having respect for all all species and not thinking that we're a superior race and the importance of bringing oneself back to nature and finding purpose and connectedness? Yeah, I think that's right. For me, it's like learning to respect the other. It's not like meeting another member of the human family or even dogs and cats that we're kind of attuned to. Um, But beyond that learning respect for the other, it's also the message of the film, of course, is about the vulnerability of the planet, that the octopus is a kind of symbol of vulnerability and if the planet is to survive, we have to recognise that vulnerability and that's what we're not doing, of course, with climate change and, and all the rest of it. So that's how they, for me, that's the kind of purpose of the story. But the story follows the classic, you know, human being going about their life thrown thrown into a situation which is demanding and challenging, and then through that challenge they learn about themselves and it prepares them better to be better human beings. Lord of the Rings, you know, Lord of the Octopus, my octopus teacher. I don't want to sound cynical about it, but when we look at Keddy, which has a completely different kind of filmic structure and it doesn't bow to the kind of dominant idea about story uh, it does make you think you know to what to what degree is what happened being shaped into a story that i'm supposed to engage with and sort of learn my lesson from do you know what i mean one of the common themes between the two is humans healing themselves through animals yeah so yep. I mean I mean if this guy had this experience developed this relationship but he went through such a healing process which is quite a quite an awesome thing and that his focus then shifted to how he's going to how he's going to 
raise his child with these values and how he's going to protect the ocean with this sea change project. That's that's an amazing thing to come out of the whole experience, aside from the structure of of the storytelling. Yeah. Yeah, and um, before we move on to Keddy, it reminded me a lot of Werner Herzog's film Grizzly Man. Have you seen Grizzly Man? I did a while back. My my only memory of that is it doesn't end well. No, no, it ends very badly. This the guy in Grizzly Man is dedicated to the preservation of bears in some remote part of Canada and ends up being eaten by one of them. So it's <laughs> it's a very different story. And it's interesting because in the octopus film he talks about um, trying to enter a different world but realising that there's a line that you can't cross. You know, I can relate to an octopus, but I can't become an octopus. In Grizzly Man, he wants to be a bear. Werner Herzog says, you know, or, or people say about him, he, he actually wants to become part of this world, not just to protect it, but he wants to become part of it, and he's crossed a line. And there's a native um, Canadian who's in the film who says, you know, we, we learn as native Canadians that, you know, you need to respect the bear. You don't try and become the bear, you learn to respect the bear. Whereas this guy wanted to become, you know, a bear. And what happens is not just him, but his girlfriend gets eaten by the bears. So <laughs> it's a very different film, but it did it did kind of come to mind as a contrasting film about protection of animals and attitudes to animals. Because that guy in Grizzly Man, he, he did a lot to promote the welfare of bears and he went around speaking in schools and doing slideshows, but every year he would go back to live among them. And I suppose he was a bit like um, our friend, the racing driver. Ed um, Senna. No. Ed Senna. He, he had this idea that he of all people, was immortal among the bears. And, of course, you know, he wasn't. To finish up, there's another one it reminded me of, which is Life of Pi. Oh, yeah. The boy in that develops a relationship with the tiger. And essentially, spoiler alert, but the tiger is, he develops an emotional connection with the tiger. And, again, it's exactly what you're saying through the eyes. You're looking at this tiger. And in a filmmaking sense, this tiger was a did was digital um they had the boy in a in a boat for months and the tiger was was uh 3d modeled but it's very realistic and in the end the the tigers leaving the tiger they get to the island and the tiger is leaving and the boy kind of hopes that the tiger's going to give some um some farewell or some some send off and the tiger's indifferent the tiger just fucks off 
the tiger's completely indifferent. And it's just, I remember thinking in that film, posing the question about the emotional and intellectual life of animals, or are they just instinctual, purely instinctual creatures? Well, that brings us to Keddie very nicely because cats have a sense compared to dogs of being indifferent to, to humans, you know, being haughty and above above humans. <laughs> Good trans. We've, we've done a seamless transition. There. A seamless for, transition. For some reason, cats, <laughs> for some reason, cats make me laugh. Well, when you give them names like George, you're not surprised. <laughs> George, before we get into that, do you want to introduce Keddy? Well, before we get into that, I'd just like to go and get a cup of tea. <laughs> Intermission. If you need to nip to the bathroom, restock the popcorn, or move seats because the bloke next to you is obnoxious, now's the time to do it. A quick word from our sponsor. Ah, uh, we don't have one, but we're hoping to get one. Let's get into our second film in this double feature. Dad, it's 33 degrees today and the heat is just hammering through the window. I'm actually Oh, sweating. really? Yeah. I've got the I've got the heater going like mad here. It's the opposite opposite here. Yeah, it's completely opposite. <laughs> There's just this wall of heat pounding through the window. 33. 33 is smashing. You need an air conditioner, man. You, you can't have air conditioners here because it's all apartment living and they drip onto the, the road and stuff. But I uh, know it's beautiful weather. But, um, yeah, so introduce this one for us, Wolf. Well, Keddy, which means K-E-D-I, 80 minutes, directed by Cedar Toran in 2016. Um. Kedi means cat in Turkish. And it's essentially a film about Istanbul, but through the eyes of the feral cats that occupy the city. And the interesting thing about these cats is that whereas we kind of, we try and eradicate feral cats and, you know, they're all scrawny and have got lice and all the rest of it, Feral cats in Istanbul are are treasured and looked after by the local communities where they live. So I'm not sure if people do own cats in Istanbul, but the cats that feature in Kedi are all cats that don't belong to anybody. They live, you know, in the district under old buildings and all the rest of it, but they're treasured and looked after and showered with affection by the local inhabitants who even go to the extremes of paying for the cats to go to vets and all the rest of it. And I think there's one scene where a guy's distributing antibiotics to the cats. So the cats all look beautifully... um, in beautiful condition, but they're actually not domestic cats, which is quite different to the way uh, in Western culture anyway we tend to treat cats. So it's a film that kind of... Istanbul is a character, but we see Istanbul and a beautiful city, but we see it from the level, from cat level, 
from street level. And we meet, I think, six or eight different cats, each with its own personality and its own community that kind of look after it. Um, And through that, we kind of learn about the city. But the interesting thing for me is that it kind of brings out the philosopher in people. When people start talking about cats, they get very philosophical about life and its meaning and, and all of that, you know. So I think it's a beautiful film and it doesn't have a kind of story structure in the sense which my octopus teacher has. It's a series, it's episodic, it's almost an essay. It moves from district to district and kind of cat to cat. And there are stories within those vignettes, if you like, but there's no overarching story except possibly... um, the message at the end that these cats are under threat because of building millions of apartment blocks and all the rest of it are encroaching upon them. Um, but that's a kind of not, it's, it's not an overt theme in the film. So it's a film about a beautiful city through the eyes, if you like, of beautiful cats and people that value those cats. So another film about our relationship to the animal world in that sense and what it can kind of teach us. Well, what did you think? Because it's a very kind of low-key film. Um, There's not really death and destruction or bombs going off or, you know, it's a a quiet and meandering film, but, but I really like it. No, I thought it was awesome. Cats, cats are hilarious. And when I first started watching it, I purposely didn't read too much about it. Sometimes I, I don't want to see the trailers and stuff. I like to leave a element of surprise. And when in those first scenes, I thought maybe it was going to be entirely one cat's perspective roaming around Istanbul, those early shots. And then, yeah, pretty quickly it started to delve into different characters around town and their relationships with these cats. But, yeah, I I really appreciated it for its quietness. And I think I'm someone who does like a sense of story structure, but I, I like that it was almost episodic in a way of these. But it really, it really gave an insight into so many into so much character and colour of a city, both characters in the cats and characters in their owners. And like you say, to grasp a different cultural approach, like there wasn't a, I, I don't, I don't think I saw a single collar on any one of the cats we saw. So they were, as you say, feral, but they were often well-groomed and healthy, but there was no sense of ownership. There, there was a sense of responsibility to them, but not of ownership, which I think is quite interesting because, we, you know, we're obsessed with ownership, aren't we? It's a very different approach, and it was almost like, well, if this cat, you know, I, one guy was like, I get angry, I kick the cat out. I don't, he was very clear, I don't, he's like, I don't abuse the cat, but I, she annoys me sometimes and she leaves, but she comes back. 
And there's almost like this acceptance that, well, if the cat wants to, it will. Um, it's free to, to, to do what it wants. But there was also this tussle between, but it is, I am the main person in its life. You know, one guy said, I'm, I'm the main character in this cat story. Everyone else is, is supporting. Yeah. And so you, 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 in the film, you meet cats and learn about their different characters, but you also meet people as individuals and you learn about their characters as well. It really gives you such an insight into the city. I've never been to Istanbul. Have you been to Turkey? No, I haven't. No, no. It gives you such a little perspective into the, the back alleys and the, and the restaurants. and Because it's a sea, it's built on the sea, on the edge of the sea. The story goes that the origin of the cats in Istanbul was that people brought them in to get rid of the rats on the docks. And they brought them in from all over the world. So there's endless different species of cat amongst these cats as well, um, which is also interesting. So then, you know, I made a few notes about the things that people say, you know. It, it reminded me, it reminds me of a short film that was in the Melbourne Film Festival about crane drivers. And um, I must try and find out. It must be around somewhere. It was only a 20-minute film, but it was interviews with guys who sit up in the sky in cranes looking down on the human race. And they're all philosophers, you know. <laughs> they're all up there going, talking about, well, what's the meaning of life? You know, all these people are running around down below like ants. Is it, What's the purpose? You know, what's but and stuff. You're meeting these rough working guys chomping on their, you know, cheese sandwich and philosophizing about the world. And it's, it's the same with these cat owners. Um, one of them says, you know, people who can't love animals can't love people. You know, there's a statement for you to think about. What, what were you going to say? Uh, I was going to say this crane driver's it's almost like astronauts or pilots or whatever. They have this separation from the earth. When you step off the earth and just observe it, they suddenly become very philosophical naturally. But yeah, with these character, with these, well, you can't call them cat owners essentially, but with these cat players, <laughs> I don't know what to call them. <laughs> they consistently yeah. philosophize. No one was just like, Oh, I got this cat 20 years ago. And we caught, it was all, it was all, consistently very so you had the fish market dude getting deeply philosophical and there were very powerful powerful statements and that, and that you hinted at one earlier on i think which was um cats can come across as ungrateful but one of the one person was saying no they are they're not ungrateful they just know better and that essentially dog it's Turkish culture or dogs see people as kind of God, whereas cats see people as the middle, the middle men or women yep. to God. And this is, this is what's classic about cats. I always say cats have attitude, man. Like they, they, they have such attitude. You know, you're either a cat person or a dog person. 
And it was really interesting for me that, yeah, this sort of attitude, what this person, I think this woman was saying is that, yeah, they're not ungrateful. They just, they just know what's going on. Yeah. Well, I wrote that one down. She says, it's said that cats are aware of God's existence and dogs are not. Dogs think people are God, but cats know differently. They know that people are the middlemen to God, you know. So you get this philosophical, almost Greek philosophical distinction between, you know, cats and dogs, which uh, it, it's both it's both hilarious but profound, you know, at the same time. And like I said, you know, you've got that that connection comes up again and again in the film where you get the close-up of the eyes of the cat and you're kind of looking into their souls. Um, and uh, you get the woman who, who, I think she's an artist, who talks about how difficult in, um, in Istanbul it is to be feminine and to be elegant, but cats know how to do it. So she spends her life kind of painting elegant cats as a way of expressing femininity. So, yeah, that's that was another interesting example. They also say cats know how to hold themselves. Like we we oft, we can struggle as as humans, but cats hold themselves in a in a confident way almost. Not not only that, but they've got superpowers because they always land on all fours. Ah, uh, true. <laughs> you know, <laughs> someone says that in the film as well. Um, and then there, there's a guy, I think he might be the guy who, um, the fisherman, or else he's the guy, there's a guy who, who feeds endless cats. But he, he says, you know, that cats have been a therapy been therapy for him that he's had a nervous breakdown and that cats have been his therapy and that he actually says cats make you fall in love with life again you know so this sort of important role that animals play in our lives and particularly cats uh, is also sort of philosophized about in the film and there's, there's one woman who, she she cooks 20 chickens a day just to feed these cats. She, so she also claims that that's a healing process for her own stuff. Yeah, yeah, the cats are therapy. And this other bloke who tends to them, you know, he said people call him crazy, but actually it's he found purpose in that. Humans healing through animals is consistent with the other, with the my octopus teacher. And yeah, a few of the characters consistently say these these cats have helped me kind of deal with their own struggle. Yeah, and and that connects with our culture as well. I mean, you know, like everybody around here, maybe it's different if you live in apartments, but everybody who lives around here has got a dog and probably a cat or a cat or a dog. An ex-girlfriend had a cat. And I swear when I, I, I woke up one night and this cat was staring at, 
at me at the end of the bed and I swear it wanted to kill me as the <laughs> intruder. The intruder. But I was seriously, I woke up and there it was staring at me and I was like this, it was adamantly, it was pretty clear that it was defending its territory and I was an intruder into this into this world. Yeah. So I think we've all, we've all got these, uh, these, but that's why I've always said cats have got attitude, but they've, you know, you, and when you see them fighting in the film and stuff, they're, they're very protective of territory and they can get quite vicious when they have to protect their young. And there's one shot that really just jumped out for me. And that's where a cat's climb, it's climbing down a thing and it's sort of struggling to climb down and it manages to climb down and then it jumps across to a tree. It scoots up the branch and perfectly out of frame. And it was just a really beautiful one-take motion of, of a shot. Yeah. Well, it's, ob- it's, it's be- again, you know, it's beautifully shot. And, of course, it's got the obligatory drone footage of Istanbul as well as the street-level cat footage. But the director, who I, I don't know of any other films that he or she, I'm, I'm assuming it's a she, has made, but they clearly spend a lot of time with these cats and filming cats. Who knows how much kind of footage they had. Did they select a number of subjects or was it more kind of organic in a way I suspect more organic that she perhaps spent three months just roaming around and getting to know people and cats and filming and then pulling together but 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 I I don't I don't know um do animals have to sign release forms Ed? did the, <laughs> did the octopus and the cats all sign release forms or they're just happy well, to be that's a good question, Dan. You know, did they give permission? They seem quite cooperative. And, and that's the uh, interesting thing is each cat has its own personality and the people in the film discuss the personalities of the cats. You know, there's the the neighbourhood psychopath and there's the rat catcher and there's that cat that when it's... It will never go in the restaurant, but it always taps on the door or on That's the classic. window when it's hungry. <laughs> and they feed it, you know, gourmet like caviar or, yeah, gourmet cheese. But it never comes in. But it only, and you see it, you see it tapping on the window, like, uh-huh. you know, where's my gourmet cheese? Classic, but it also, <laughs> it, it also didn't interfere with the customers. No, that's right. But the cool, the cool thing they also said about that, it had a very arist- aristocratic kind of way it held itself, but they occasionally they would find it in a dumpster as well. And, and she said it's it still was kind of a posh cat, but it still had this gritty punk thing going on, um, which is this balance that I think it just gave me a <laughs> more of an appreciation for cats and also the culture in in Istanbul, in a way. It's not a culture that believes in birth control. You know, like, they they look after these cats and one guy talks about the fact that he's got a tab at the vet, you know, because he, he takes them to get treated. But there's no sign of spaying any, like, these cats are just multiplying 
having kittens all over the place. Um, and there's absolutely no, doesn't seem to be any thought at all about birth control. No, nobody comments about that. That's just an observation that it seems in the film, you know, there's just cats and kittens all over the joint. It's interesting because being going around Europe, I have noticed more feral cats here, like in Italy and Spain and stuff. But now if I was to go to Istanbul, I would look at them in a whole different light. Yeah. I mean, the other the other day I was running around a lake and I came back through and there was a beautiful cat sitting on a on a post and I just had to go up and, and pat it. And also last week we were all going to the ice cream shop and a cat actually started leading us to the ice cream shop. Oh, yeah. And, of course, of course, Leo started kind of bonding with the cat and then he literally wanted to take it home, you know. This cat was particularly confident in a, in a way and was just leading us and had no issues getting patted and stuff. And then its owner came and quickly, like, reestablished the ownership. Um, so, yeah, but it, it did get me thinking a little, probably not in such a deep philosophical way, but, you know, we had a cat, George, and I think it's important to mention him. There's not a lot of, it, I can't see myself having the same kind of philosophical, you know, but he was 15 or something when he um, died. So he was with me through the bulk of my developmental childhood and there's a couple of distinct, you know, there's some funny instances where I used to do pranks and try and, like, catch him on camera tripping over. And I, I was always fascinated by this cat's landing on four legs thing, so I used to toss him around a bit and, and it sounds like a disturbing thing for a child, perhaps. That was not perhaps. Well, I remember, I remember you used to put tripwires down the hallway and then film, you know, and I had to shoot the cat so he'd run down the hallway in the hopes that you could get some footage to send to Funniest Home Movies. I wanted to win I wanted to win the the prize money on Funny Home Videos, but the thing about the thing about Funny Home Videos is you can't you can't replicate that stuff has to happen naturally. You can't force it. Yeah, and you can't legislate. So when George the cat ran down this corridor, he just tripped on the wire and just landed back on his feet and was completely bemused, like, oh, what the, what the heck just happened? Um, but there is one thing I remembered about him that did get me a little bit philosophical, and I, I remember as a kid trying to go to sleep at night and I would hear you in the kitchen chatting to George and you'd be chatting away, having a conversation with him. And it used to make me feel very secure and comforted. Right. Just listening to the dialogue between you and him, I, I remember it used to make me really happy at night trying to get to sleep to listen to that. Yeah. George was a good cat. He was a very homely cat. He wasn't, um, he wasn't kind of uh, haughty or whatever but you you just know with cats that you know if you stop feeding them they'll go and get food somewhere else where a dog will kind of pine for you 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 just know that cats don't have that kind of tie somehow yeah 
the, 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 other, the other, the last thing with George was he also once the house flooded, we had a leaky tap, and he came and woke us all up. Oh, did he? Yeah, the sink was filling up, and the tap had busted, and he he started meowing and came and woke the whole house up. And that again, that that was I remember thinking. So he is aware, like he's aware of what's going on. He's trying, he's trying to, to, he's trying to tell us that you know, got to sort it out, or the house is going to flood. Yeah, it makes you wonder, doesn't it? But he still brought, you know, nice birds in to drop at your feet, or <laughs> a half-chewed mess. <laughs> Wanted to trophy all this stuff to the yeah, to the owners, yeah. but no, that it just it did remind me of our our experience with with cats. Yeah, well, you know, we could finish with another another quote. All right, wrote then, where someone says in Keddy, "A cat meowing at your feet is life smiling at you. They remind us that we're alive." So there you go. But I just want to finish on the because I've been thinking about this, you know. Dominance in documentary of story, uh, because I sent you that link to that article, which you know ironically is written by someone whose surname is Story, um, <laughs> Brett Story. I saw that. I saw that. <laughs> yeah, um, written by Brett Story, who who is apparently a woman, not a man, um, questioning the kind of hegemony of the three-act story structure and the hero's journey and saying that, you know, it, it's no surprise that My Octopus Teacher won the Oscar because it conforms beautifully to that dominant idea that you have to have a three-act structure of, you know, someone gets involved in an issue and, they face the challenges and then there's some resolution, um, some change in, in them for the better as a result. And, uh, you know, documentary wasn't always like that, you know, that there's documentary as poem, documentary as essay, documentary as montage, episodic documentaries. In, in the history of documentary, Story hasn't been the kind of dominant form, but it's become the kind of dominant form, primarily because of the movement of documentary into the cinema, where story is all, you know, and you've got books, you know you have, you've read some of them on story and what's-his-name's book on story and how you've got to throw in conflict and, you know, all this kind of story structure stuff. So it's made me think about that, and particularly in relation to my teaching about script writing and so on. And I think Keddie and and the Octopus film are are good examples of one and the other, the the story-dominant form and the more essayistic, poetic leisurely approach to a film. And, of course, it's the Octopus film that wins the Oscar. Last year I devoured a few of those screenwriting story books and they literally, you know, they're, they're formulaic, formulaic 
in a sense. It's like at 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 the ten minute mark, this plot point put you need to put this plot point, and there has to be this and this. And you know, I like this concept of having a kind of structural through line, but then it was annoying me in a, in a way because I started watching some mainstream narrative films and literally to the minute you see this stuff happen it's like textbook 101 you know hollywood you, you literally look at the minute count and you can see this the screenwriters have followed this stuff and i mean sometimes that works unnoticeably or whatever but personally as someone who's learning this stuff i was i started to get a bit frustrated with it i was like why does that you know, is that manipulative in a way? And I said it to you when we, when we were looking at Dick Johnson, I've, I've through this journey so far of, of looking at these docos kind of in depth. Um, I've noticed how kind of freeing it is in a way to, to loosen this stuff up. Yeah. Well, Dick's story, Dick, Dick Johnson's a good example of a film that, moves away from that kind of linear, simple notion of story. And the other film that Kirsten Johnson made that I mentioned called Camera Person is mentioned by Brett Story in this article as a, as a good example of a, a film which doesn't conform to story. But the idea, I suppose, is that stories are how we make sense of life and the world and that we need stories. So you're saying it's a, it's naturally there. Well, that's that's. I think that's what people who really believe in story. That's their argument. Is that we we need stories to sit down by the campfire and turn our experiences into stories with a beginning and a middle and an end and a lesson, so that we can learn you know, how to deal with what in fact is a completely unpredictable and random universe. Um, you know, and they'll make a story about Ericsson, you know, that he was a successful football player until he collapsed with cardiac arrest on the pitch and then he becomes so grateful for life that he'll start some charity up and you know there you, there you go you got another hero's journey you know uh, they're everywhere I st- again in the formula one drivers you know a guy a guy's car lit on fire last year and he was in the flames for three minutes and he thought it was the end and uh, but he, he'd just been let go by his team in in parallel to that and then after this after this accident, everything just switched to pure, like, gratefulness. And, um, you know, so this succession of him essentially being fired and then getting lit on fire in his last race, it was just, it was my, it was just mind-boggling to then see him be like, I'm just grateful to be here. I don't, you know, me being fired, whatever, it's all kind of, um, yeah, this archetypal stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I suppose uh, when you're watching a doco, it's important to kind of think about that and to think, well, you know, to what degree am I being, is this story being shaped in a way that's being presented to me to accept 
as, you know, a powerful story when in fact perhaps it's not that simple and straightforward. And I think, you know, there's a sense in which I'm a little bit critical of the octopus thing because I think they have shaped that story with a purpose behind the shaping of it. Um, and I'm just a little... And, and the way they used the sound design and music, which you're not really aware of when you watch the film, but when you watch it again, you go, blimey, you know, it's such a cinematic soundtrack and it's driving me as an audience member to accept this story in a particular way. And I'm not sure I want to be always corralled into that way of thinking. So I suppose for me, Freedom Stories is the closest I've come to a a film which is episodic in that there are a number of characters who are connected because they have some experience in common, but there's not a kind of through line. You know, it's it's a bit more open and episodic um, in in that sense. And that's I think that's where I'm more I'm more interested in looking at that kind of filmmaking than I am in in the traditional story sense. So good films. Are we gonna score them or not? Uh, well I was gonna say I actually I think I was a bit stuck. I don't think it's about whether they're good or bad about labeling them as, as good or bad it's it's about the getting philosophical like a cat owner but it's about the experience of of watching them so i don't think a rating i think our rating in a way is the is almost comparing the two that's the best way we can they're both both amazing documentaries in their own way yeah so we won't rate them we'll leave we'll leave our listeners to rate them for themselves it's uh, it's funny. It's always like you know when you come out of a, when you watch a film in the cinema, uh, which we've missed for some time. But when you cut, when you've watched it with someone, and you come out, and then there's a bit of bit of time, and then it's the oh, what did you think? Yeah, and and it's yeah, I liked it, and then blah blah blah. You know, it's like how do you put that into a neat? You don't instantly say oh, I give it five stars out or whatever, but it's just about different experiences from different perspectives. So we're not David and Margaret. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think in the comparison, that's where it's, yeah. Um, but the thing is, like I said earlier, we we pick a high level of documentary. So it's not like we're watching a, a bad documentary. Should we watch a bad documentary? <laughs> do, well, do you need to see what's bad to know what's good or is it a waste of time? Well, that, that's a good question. I, th- I think if you're a student of documentary, you owe it to yourself to watch some bad films. But I think for our purposes, we don't want to waste our time discussing <laughs> no, so bad no. films. Why would we? <laughs> Why would we? <laughs> but I'm just talking, you know, they're at a high level, so it's not like you know, they're going to get a, a one star or whatever. Yeah. Okay. Well, we can drop the star rating um, and see what we come up with next. Cool. Looking forward. Thank you, guys. I hope you enjoyed that one. I hope people did, and I hope that they'll 
catch up with some of these films if they haven't seen them. And in the meanwhile, we'll go back to Euro 2020 (laughs) (laughs) and and follow Italy, the Azzurri. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you have a film you would like to recommend for us to review or you have any filmmaker questions, please email lionfuryproductions at gmail.com. Do join us for the next episode when we'll be sharing our thoughts on two medically related films, a narrative feature, Sound of Metal, about a drummer who begins to lose his hearing, and a doco, The English Surgeon, which gives a glimpse into the life and dilemmas of a neurosurgeon. See you then.